Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 8, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. That's my syncopated version of our very, very long URL. So my name is Rick. I'm author of The God Who Fights For You, released that last year. That was actually a, a rewrite, an update of a, a book I wrote almost 10 years ago now called Sifted. So this was an updated version of, of that book um, that was just released last year. And it's a book about where is Jesus in the midst of our pain? What is he doing? What are his intentions? It really gets at that age old question. How come bad things happen to good people? What is Jesus role in all of this? And what is his intention? So, so that's the God who fights for you. And before that, the, the book spiritual grid and before that, the Jesus centered life is a book that I was asked for uh, many years by others and particularly my wife to write. And I resisted for a long time because I just wasn't ready to take on that project. It was going to be perhaps the most expansive of my life. And uh, I finally caved in to all of that nudging, including nudging from Jesus and wrote The Jesus-Centered Life. Uh, And then I'm right in the uh, tail end now of the revisions on the Jesus-Centered Daily, just my new 365-day devotional. So it has now replaced the Jesus-Centered Life as the most expansive, broadest, deepest project, writing project of my life. Uh, it's coming, the, that part of it, the writing part of it is coming to a close now. I just finished the final revisions on on the manuscript, and now it uh, it goes to design and uh, on its long path toward a release in, in October. So I'll tell you more about that when it gets close to the time. And of course, I'm the, the uh, general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, uh, a one-of-a-kind Bible that uh, no matter where you're reading in it, it yeah, because of our special features that we've included in it, points you to Jesus. So if you haven't picked up a Jesus-Centered Bible, oh, it's past time. You should try it. We've heard from tens of thousands of people that this Bible has changed the way they read the Bible and has impacted their relationship with Jesus in a profound way. So pick it up. So this is the fourth episode of a new series that I'm calling Foundations. Uh, We're essentially exploring foundational truths that are connected to Jesus and his mission in our lives. So whatever is foundational about who he is and whatever is foundational about the kingdom of God that he has come to reveal, that's what we're focusing on. And we're kind of sort of progressing a little bit. It's a kind of a loose progression. But last week we explored what it, what it looked like to build a song from a mess. Uh, in this episode, we are going to be exploring who can be saved. Kind of a fundamental, talk about foundational who can be saved? That is as foundational as it gets. So I thought I'd uh, give you a little peek into my uh, Tuesday night group again and share with you something I, an experience really I created for them last week. What I did was I have these, um, I somehow got a hold of a box of blowguns, if you can believe it. Here at group, we are all the time creating experiences and we're all the time using strange things to create those experiences with. And apparently, it must have been for a vacation Bible school or something like that. 
there was a whole box of these blow guns that they were going to give away. And I said, I'll take those and uh, I'll, I'll figure out later what I'm going to do with them. And these blow guns are just very simple plastic tubes with a mouthpiece on the end. And they had three little darts that came with each one, three different colored darts. One was pink, one was green, and one was yellow. And uh, I started thinking about how I'd like to use these blow guns in our, as an ex for an experience in our group. And I wanted to explore what it means to be chosen. So this is a phrase that we're very familiar with in the Old Testament in particular, the chosen ones. We know the chosen ones are the people of Israel, the Jews. But we don't all the time recognize that that same phrase is also used in the New Testament. The chosen ones is used in the New Testament. But there is quite a different meaning between the Old Testament meaning of the chosen ones and the New Testament meaning. But I was thinking about, well, how can, how can I use these blowguns to help these teenagers experience what it feels like to be chosen? So I broke them into three different teams, and I gave each person one of these blowguns. And I told them that on their team, they would have to decide together what uh, characteristics or qualifications they would be looking for in the ones that they would choose um, in the rest of the group. And by choosing, I mean, I told them that of the three darts they had, the three different colors of darts, pink, green, and yellow, the pink dart was to be used to mark or hit <laughs> the, the ones that they were choosing in the rest of the group. They just had to figure out what the qualification for choosing them was and not tell anyone. And then the green and the yellow darts you could use to freeze someone if you wanted to. So the pink one was used to choose someone based on whatever qualification you were looking for. So you could only shoot your pink dart at the people that uh, fit that qualification you were looking for. But then just to uh, clear the deck a little bit, clear the, clear the playing field, you could freeze people by hitting them with the green or yellow dart. And uh, if you were, the, the thing was, if you were hit by a pink dart, you were supposed to uh, hold on to that pink dart and keep it until the end until there were no more pink darts to be shot anymore. So each of the three teams had a different secret um, characteristic or qualifier for the chosen ones that they were looking for. And then I said, one, two, three, go. And then our house turned into chaos with people shooting each other all over the place. But by the end of that time, I asked, if you have a pink dart right now, that means you were chosen, um, I separated them out to another place in the room and then the people that did not get quote unquote chosen had no pink dart got on the other side of the room and then I asked um, I asked people so uh, what what qualified those people those chosen ones to be shot with a pink dart and um, again there was three different qualifiers because there's three different teams so one team decided that the chosen ones would be anyone who's laughing. Another team decided that the chosen ones would be anyone who had braces. And the last team decided that the chosen ones would be anyone who was not wearing white socks. Not wearing white socks. So obviously <laughs> pretty disparate characteristics. But, and of course, none of those characteristics would qualify them for salvation, right? <laughs> but when we think about the chosen ones, we are saying that there are there is some qualification 
for those who are finding salvation, those who can be saved. What is that qualifier? It's not um, that you're not wearing white socks or you laugh or that you have braces, obviously. It's something else though. So in our culture, uh, we ask what, what, what are the qualifiers that most people think will get you to heaven, will allow you to be saved? In our culture, in our wider culture, what do most people think those qualifiers include? And some things that popped up were, you have to be a good person to go to heaven, or you have to do good works, or you have to know the Bible, or you have to be a person who helps others, or the good in you has to outweigh the bad, right? We've talked before about the show, The Good Place, a really brilliant show to talk about and explore some of these kinds of theological issues. But in The Good Place on the show, um, a bunch of people um, have landed in The Good Place. And on their first day in The Good Place, they're told the reason that they're there is that there has been a secret point system devised to attach points to every good thing that they did while they were alive on earth and to subtract points from them when they did something bad and and that the people that ended up in the good place were the ones that scored the highest that that's what was explained to them at the beginning they soon find out by uh intuition and discovery and investigation that this point system actually wasn't created by heaven it was created by hell <laughs> That's the real twist in the, in the show and the fun of the show because they really undermine and decapitate the point system to, in a very inventive way. So, but a lot of people casually believe that those who are saved are those who score high on the point system. Um, so those are some ways the culture embraces what it means to be a chosen one. And then, but if we transition into uh, the Old Testament, where, the, again, the Jewish people are called the chosen ones. What do we discover when we uh, take a peek at the qualifiers for the chosen ones in the Old Testament? So here's a couple of quick, quick, quick bites from Deuteronomy, where this phrase, the chosen ones, first shows up in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, it says, For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. And a bit later in Deuteronomy 14, 2, it says, You have been set apart as holy to the Lord your God, and he has chosen you from all the nations of the earth to be his own special treasure. And so the question then is, well, what if, if these people are chosen, what has qualified them to be chosen? And what we get from these you know, two little snippets is simply that God did the choosing, that they're chosen because God chose them. <laughs> that that that's the pretty much the extent of it he's set apart a certain people to be chosen so that he can live out his relationship and his story with them as a testimony to the rest of the world so to be chosen in the old testament simply means that god god has chosen a people a set apart people and you happen to be a part of that set apart people but i mentioned before that this phrase the chosen ones also shows up in the new testament um, it, it, it's funny because we don't often think of that phrase being in the New, New Testament, but, it, but it's, it's actually all over it. Here's a couple of examples uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 20, here's what it says. Jesus, uh, this is 20, verse 23. Jesus told them, 
Now, now uh, sorry, I need to back up here. The them that Jesus is telling is James and John. They have come to Jesus and uh, at the urging of their mother, a nice Jewish mother, uh, they have approached Jesus and said they want to sit on his right and left, the places of honor in the kingdom of God. So they're assuming already they're going to go to heaven, and they want a little more than that. They want to sit at the right and left hand, the places of honor. They want respect and honor. And Jesus then has a little uh, inventive, subversive dialogue with them about this. And uh, one of the things that he says to them is, are you able, at first he says, it's not for me to, to, uh, to uh, give you those places. You'll hear him say that in just a second. But he also says, are you able to drink from the bitter cup that I'm about to drink from? And James and John, not even understanding what they're saying, say, of course we are, sure. So here's what Jesus tells them. You will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. In Matthew 24, 31, he says, um, and he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now here, the, the choosing is not confined to a singular people, a set-apart people. Uh, Jesus makes clear, and then Paul makes even more clear, that, that the message of the gospel, the good news that the Messiah has come to save, is for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, and that the standard for choosing has shifted. And Paul, Paul does something quite inventive. He says the standard for choosing has shifted, but actually it hasn't. If you really think about how the choosing happened in the Old Testament, you'll see that the choosing kind of happens the same way now as it then did then. We just screwed up how we thought about the chosen ones in the Old Testament. So uh, the, uh, we'll get to we'll get to what Paul how Paul kind of deconstructs this in just a minute. But I thought it would be also interesting for us to explore when Jesus chose his first disciples. So here he's choosing those who will follow him. Um, and, and so it's important to kind of slow down and pay attention to exactly what he's doing when he chooses these first disciples. So we're going to go to uh, Luke chapter 5, and we're going to read, let's see, verses 1 through 11 in Luke chapter 5. And I just want you to listen very closely here with the question lurking in the background. What? What, what are the qualifications for choosing that are evident in this story of choosing? So here we go, Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. Well, he noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. So they'd been fishing all night. They hadn't caught anything. They're washing their nets so that they can go home. They're tired and exhausted and they just want to go to bed. So they're just washing their nets right before they leave to go home for the day because a lot the uh, commercial fishermen fished at night, uh, typically not during the day because that's when the fish came to the surface is at night. So fishermen had left their boats on the shore and they were washing their nets. And Jesus decides to step into one of the boats and he asks Simon, the boat's owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and he taught the crowds from there. 
And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now get this now, he's taught the crowds sitting on Simon's boat. Simon is roped into this whole deal. He doesn't really want to do this. He just wants to go home and go to bed. But the rabbi has stepped onto his boat and out of respect, he pushes off into the water. And Simon is sitting there with a front row seat to Jesus' teaching this whole time. So Jesus finishes his teaching and he says to Simon, now go outwards deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat. And soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. Wow, they hit the jackpot. <laughs> so when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I am such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. So here we have a story of choosing that looks like a funny story of choosing because there's, there's a choosing coming from both trajectories. Jesus chose to get onto Simon's boat and to teach from there. He chose to ask Simon to throw his nets over the side, knowing what would happen. But then with this enormous catch of fish, then the choosing shifts to Peter and James and John. So of course there's a, an incredible miracle here, but lots of people saw Jesus uh, perform miracles and they didn't end up being his disciples. They might've followed him for a bit and then sloughed off, or he might've just been, you know, the attraction of the day, as far as they were concerned. Like what, look what this guy did. But in this case, as soon as Simon realizes what has happened, and he has again had a front row seat to Jesus' teaching, and now he sees what Jesus just did, his first reaction is utter humility. Oh, Jesus, leave me. I am a sinful, I am such a sinful man. He's immediately aware of his own sin and his humility. He's not defensive. He's not uh, proud that Jesus was on his boat when he did this. He's not even um, uh, celebrating the financial windfall of all of these fish in his boat. What he does is he falls to his knees, aware in humility of his own brokenness, what a mess he is. Um, and he's recognizing that who Jesus is. The reason he wants Jesus to leave his boat is he recognizes that Jesus, in performing this miracle, has the power of God in him. And Simon is just mortified that someone as ugly as him would be uh, in the same boat as someone as beautiful and as pure as God. So Simon asked him to leave. And by him saying, please, you need to get off your, my boat, Jesus knows immediately, oh, he recognizes his need for me and he recognizes who I am. That I'm beyond just a magician or an illusionist, that I have the power of God. And he's recognizing who I am from the beginning. So in a funny way, I know this sounds funny, but Peter 
is right then, even though when he's asking Jesus to leave his boat, he's choosing. He's choosing by saying, I believe in you. I believe in who you are. I think you're God and I'm a mess. You better get off my boat. So he's awestruck, scripture says. And so were his partners, James and John. They were just dumbfounded by what had happened. So Jesus tells him, and here's where he's choosing again. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. So here Jesus invites these three fishermen to follow him. And how does he do it? He, he says, from now on, you'll be fishing for people. So he's giving them the dream of a great purpose in their life. He sees something in them that he wants. And he's inviting them to join him in his incredible adventure and his mission. So, and in turn, they, of course, could have easily said, uh, no, we won't. <laughs> uh, do you realize how long it's taken us to build up our commercial, commercial fishing business? We are not going to leave this all behind and become slaves like everyone else. They could easily have said that, but they didn't say that. It says, as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. They had been captured by him. They had been invited in, and it felt like hitting the jackpot. Oh my gosh, he's inviting us to be with him? They recognized the treasure of what they were being offered, uh, Jesus' own presence, and they immediately realized, like Jesus' parable of uh, the pearl of great price or the, or the treasure buried in the field, they realized the value of the treasure they were being offered. Therefore, their commercial fishing business paled in value compared to what they were being offered, so they just left it behind. It's not a, a miraculous thing. It's a pragmatic thing. Once you've determined that the thing you're being offered in trade for your commercial fishing business is so much more valuable than it, that it just makes sense to leave it behind. And that's what they did. So the choosing here, you could say the choosing is mutual. It's uh, I choose you while you're choosing me. Or you choose me while I'm choosing you. It works both ways. So the choosing in the New Testament, we're getting an inkling here, is not like the Old Testament. Now, of course, these first three are Jews, but among his disciples is Luke, a Greek, um, uh, a, a non-Jew. And, of course, immediately, Jesus, Jesus expands his message in a kind of an offensive way to pagans and Samaritans and all kinds of people who have uh, who are actually ostracized by Jews. He offers them salvation and clearly is broadening the scope of who is chosen. So uh, the standard that these first disciples meet has really nothing to do with their Jewish heritage, even though they are Jews. The standard is their humility, their recognition of their own need, and their recognition of the treasure of who Jesus is, that he is God himself. This is the first inkling they have of this. So in the new covenant, because uh, that's where we live now, we do not live under the old covenant anymore. It's like, uh, you know, if, if you're a renter and you have a lease and your lease is up and the management company says, we have created a new lease 
And if you sign it, you'll have to abide by these new stipulations in your rental agreement. It's the same thing. The old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant that we are living under. And in the new covenant, we are not qualified for salvation by the law or by trying harder or by personal goodness. We are qualified by our simple childlike faith in Jesus. And by faith, I mean that we believe Jesus is who he says he is. That's what faith is. Faith is not an incantation or a Harry Potter spell. It is our simple childlike belief that Jesus is who he says he is and that we act upon that belief, those two things. We believe like a child and then we act like a child. And that's what belief really or faith really is. Um, Abraham, uh, Paul says, Here's the big twist, and we're going to go into this twist in Galatians 3. We're going to spend a little time in Galatians 3 and explore what Paul is saying about this change in what in how we are chosen. But just to give you a little uh, preview of this, Paul says that Abraham, who's the father of Israel, father of Jews, was not counted as righteous, um, and that's a that's a quote from Paul. Abraham was not counted as righteous because he perfectly obeyed the, the law because we all know Abraham didn't perfectly obey the law. So Paul says he wasn't counted as righteous because he perfectly obeyed the law, but because he believed in God. So Paul is reaching back in the Old Testament saying, you know, we got it wrong that chosen meant uh, simply that we were among the Jews and that that's what May, uh, allowed us to be saved. He said, actually, the, the righteousness ascribed to Abraham was because he believed that God was who he said he was. So let's explore what belief then really means, and let's dive into what Paul says in Galatians 3, 1 through 13. So um, I thought we could uh, read this in kind of a slowed down way. Um, Lectio Divina is a practice, um, an ancient church father's practice, where you, it's, it's a scripture reading practice, where you, it allows you to slow down and have a conversation with Jesus while you're reading the scripture. It's a way to invite Jesus, the rabbi inside us, and this is what I call him in spiritual grit, the rabbi inside. Uh, the Holy Spirit in us is the rabbi inside. So it's a way of slowing down and inviting the rabbi inside us to teach us as we're reading so that we're not simply reading it in isolation, but we're in, uh, very intentionally inviting Jesus to, to uh, uh, illuminate what we're reading. So that's what Lectio Divina is. And it involves just uh, going over the passage that we're reading multiple times, looking for different things each time. That's what helps us to slow down. And while we're doing that, we're inviting Jesus to teach us. So I thought it'd be good for us to slow down and read this passage from Galatians in a Lectio Divina way. So we'll put a link, by the way, on this podcast episode, which again is season five, episode eight. We'll put a link to just a primer on Lectio Divina if you want to learn more about how this practice works. But uh, what we're going to do first is simply read through Galatians 3, 1 through 13. I'll read it through from start to finish. And here's what I want you to do as you, as you listen to me read this. I want you to make note of the things that just stick out to you as you're listening. 
a word or a phrase that just pops into pops out of this account something that captures your attention as i'm reading this and uh, just take note of it if you're driving of course you can't write anything down just remember if you can one or two things that just stick out to you as i'm reading if you're listening to this and you can write um, you might want to uh, open up your Bible to Galatians 3, and as I'm reading, uh, just highlight those things that stick out to you with a highlighter. So I'll give you a moment if you want to grab a highlighter and open up to Galatians 3. Um, and as I read, just, just highlight whatever, you know, just sticks out to you. Those of you who, are, who cannot do that, just imagine that you're highlighting in this passage those things that stick out to you when you hear them. So let's, let's read through it first, Galatians 3, 1 through 13. This is Paul speaking. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It's because you believe the message you heard about Christ. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. This was a radical statement that Paul is reaching back to, to focus on, by the way. Uh, God promises Abraham, all nations, not just the Jews, will be blessed because of you. He's already planted this thought way back in the Old Testament that the chosen ones are way beyond the, just the, the Israelites. Picking up again in verse 9. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it's clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that the person has life. But Christ rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham, so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Now, the, the question here 
as we go through this, if you've highlighted in your head, as I've read along here, is what does belief really mean? Like uh, another way of saying that is, well, what are we doing when we're actually believing? Um, that That's the real question. Belief isn't simply, you know, the 95% of people in America who say they believe in God. We know that belief is something more than that, that the acknowledgement of some kind of possible reality is not the same kind of belief that Paul is talking about here. So that the second time um, that uh, uh, I'm going to go through this, I'm just going to uh, land on some of the highlighted parts for me, uh, where Jesus sort of highlighted for me um, places in here that are important. So as I read this, and I was trying to listen to the Spirit of Jesus in me as I read it, these are the places where I stopped and highlighted. So I just want to focus on those for just a second. And again, think about, well, what does belief really mean? And what are we, do what are we doing when we're believing? What, what, is, what does that look like? So early on, he's telling the Galatians how foolish they are because um, that they, they've had a clear picture of what this whole thing is about, but now they seem to have strayed from it. So uh, the first question he asks them is, did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? So he's setting them up. He's trying to out maybe their default practice. And uh, one way to, to understand what he's asking here is he could ask this same question to people in our own culture today by asking them, do you really believe that you have the spirit in you and that you found salvation because you're a good person? or that you've done good work so you know the Bible, or that you help other people, or the good in you outweighs the bad, or you've scored pretty well on the point system. It's another way of interpreting what Paul is asking here. Do you really believe that that's why the Spirit of God is in you, and that's why you have an inheritance of salvation in you? And then he answers his own question, of course not. And then he, then he says, you received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. So then he's asking, if you've started out this way, it looks like you're, you're regressing back to your default setting where trying hard to be better is the standard. Here's what he says. Uh, if you started out your new lives in the freedom of the spirit, that's why you're chosen. Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? I don't think Paul can be any blunter. That ain't going to work, people, he's saying. And that's not the gospel message, is trying harder to be perfect. And yet, mo I would say it's not an overstatement to say most people in the church think the Christian life is simply about trying harder to be more perfect. And we just have to double down our efforts and increase our discipline and do the right thing and live out our commitment and be more congruent in our life with what we say we believe. All of that has some connection to what Paul is saying here is empty, which is trying harder to be perfect. So uh, then he says, have you experienced this life with Jesus um, uh, and gone through so much now to just junk it, to, to throw it all away and go back to the, the burden and the captivity of working harder to be better. So then he, then he, uh, then he basically says, uh, 
did God give us the Holy Spirit to work miracles um, because you obeyed the law perfectly? And he, he was saying, again, of course, that's not what, what's going on here. It's because you believed in who Jesus is and what he can do. That's why. And then this is when he goes back to, to uh, reinterpret um, why Abraham is the father of faith, why, why Abraham um, was counted as righteous. He basically says it wasn't because Abraham kept, kept all the law. We know he didn't. So if he didn't keep all the law, then what, why does God see him as righteous? And the reason God saw him as righteous was simply because he believed in him. Now, believed in him is, again, not simply an acknowledgement that he might exist, but when he believed in him, what did Abraham do? Well, the, the quintessential example from his life is that God asked him to take his only son, Isaac, into the wilderness with a knife, put him on an altar, and sacrifice him. So Abraham does this. He comes to the point of raising his knife over his son, and God stops him and substitutes a lamb caught in a thicket as a, as a sacrifice instead. But what, what does God see in Abraham's heart? He sees in Abraham's heart that he believes so deeply in who God is, his reality, his strength, um, his authority, that when God asks him to do this, he does it. He follows through with action he, based on what he believes about who God is. He follows through. And God, of course, stops him. But what, it, what, does, what does God see in Abraham's heart in this little vignette? Remember, the sacrifice that he has asked Abraham to make is the same sacrifice he will later make by offering his son on the cross. And in the case of Abraham, he, he stops him before he can follow through because that would be wrong. <laughs> um, but he doesn't stop himself from sacrificing his own son. But what he sees in Abraham is something like his own heart a heart that is all in, a heart that is given over to belief. Abraham doesn't just acknowledge God's presence. Uh, his whole life revolves around the presence and authority uh, and teaching of God in his life. His whole life orbits around that. Uh, you might say he's a pig, not a chicken, <laughs> to use a phrase that we love here on the Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus podcast. That comes from... Um, the, a t-shirt you can win if you're a wait staff at the French Laundry in, uh, in uh, Sonoma County in California. Um, French Laundry is one of the top five restaurants in the world. And if you're on the wait staff there, um, you have had quite a career already. You're the best of the best to get hired there. You can make a six-figure income as a, wait, as a waiter or a waitress at the French Laundry. And every year they give an award for the one who is um, – displayed the best customer service and it's a t-shirt that says be the pig on the front of it i asked my friend bob whose daughter won that award that t-shirt one year i said what does that mean and he said well everyone understands at the restaurant that that phrase means the chicken may give up an egg for breakfast but the pig gives everything the pig gives it all so that's what that phrase be the pig means and here on the podcast we we say if you are all in with jesus you're a pig not a chicken so here, um, God is enjoying, delighting in, and valuing the pigness of Abraham. It's funny that 
you know, pigs are unclean to eat the Jews. <laughs> but the truth is, there uh, Abraham is displaying pig-like tendencies here that he is all in, and that reflects uh, on God's heart as well. God is always all in in His heart, so He sees that same thing in Abraham, and and that all inness is toward belief in who God is. So, uh, so Paul points out that all nations, all kinds of people are going to be blessed because the standard is not so much your nationality or race here. The standard is whether you really believe. Um, that's it. And anyone can meet that standard. It just depends on the person. So then he continues on, but the, those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. So if we continue to think that trying harder to be perfect, trying harder to be better, uh, trying harder to be a good person, if we fundamentally and functionally think that that is what makes us right with God, then we're under the curse of the law. We ha if that's our standard, we have to keep it perfectly or we're cursed. So Paul is pointing out here, you don't want to live by that standard because A, you won't be able to perfectly do it. And once you've tried and failed, you're under the curse of the law. That's why the curse of the law is there. It's designed to make us hopeless in trying harder to be better. It's designed to show us what a hopeless path that is and what a waste of effort that is. So that's the, that's the point Paul is trying to make. He says, it's clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. Um, and <clears throat> um, he says, goes on to say, this way of faith, this faith in Jesus, is very different from the way of the law. The way of the law says it's through obeying the law that a person has life. And then he says, but in the new life, in the new covenant we have, the way that we gain life is through Jesus himself, by becoming attached to him. Here, here's what he says. Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. So we, we, can't, we can't try harder to be perfect. It doesn't work. We're under a curse. And he's saying that Jesus then rescues from us from that curse because he takes that curse upon himself on the cross. So then he, then he uh, ends up by saying, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. So it's the, uh, if we are believers, we have received the Spirit through our belief in Jesus. And what does belief really mean? And what do we do when we're believing? Well, in the end, belief means that we um, embrace and ingest the truth about who Jesus is. And, and we don't just assent to that belief. We act as though it's true in our life. And the, the proof in the pudding is in how we act out that truth in our life. We are chosen because we are choosing. That makes sense. So I had uh, some people uh, kind of uh, tilt their heads when they're trying to think about this because um, especially in our Tuesday night group, but elsewhere, I've had adults ask me about the same thing. But the language seems pretty clear and disturbing that there are chosen ones even under the new covenant. How can it be that Jesus would randomly choose some people, and what happens if you're not chosen? But we look at this question uh, in a linear way, not in a 
a multi-dimensional way. But of course, we live on a linear plane, time and space. God does not. He lives in a multi-dimensional space. So we have a hard time understanding how we can be chosen while we're choosing. But this really is a picture of what a relationship looks like, right? So when you are in a dating relationship with someone, um, early on, you're sort of testing the waters to see how far this relationship is going to go. And the way that a relationship goes from first meeting or the first date to a wedding day is a mutual choosing along the way. It can't be just one person choosing the other along the way. That doesn't end up in a wedding. <laughs> it has to be both people mutually choosing along the way. And out of their mutual choosing, that mutual choosing can get so deep, so intimate, that in the end, the two commit themselves to each other and they wed. They, the two become one, Jesus says. So it's this mutual choosing that is our template for what it is to be chosen. Jesus created marriage and so many other metaphors in the created world to show us what this mutual choosing looks like. If we just look to our own deepening relationships, we'll understand how we can be chosen and choosing at the same time. Because your beloved is choosing you as you are choosing her or him. And the choosing overlaps somehow. And then you become the chosen one, and so does your spouse become the chosen one because of the result of your mutual choosing. And this is what we do when we're believing. We're mutually choosing. We feel the chosenness of Jesus, that he's well-pleased and delighted with us, that he hungers for us, that he longs for us to be with him, that he wants us to be in him as he is in the Father. But simultaneously, we are choosing him. We are inviting him into a deeper place. We are longing for him more than more of him than we have now. We are longing to live out his love in our life. We're longing to believe and trust more deeply. We're choosing him. And we're choosing him sometimes against the evidence that shows that tells us we shouldn't choose him. In the sense that uh, our bad, rotten circumstances leave us perplexed and disillusioned at times. And yet in those dark circumstances, many of us still choose him. Now that's real choosing. That's called belief. When you choose Jesus, when the vending machine no longer works for you, when the system that you had set up in your head that gives you blessing and honor and your, your hopes and dreams are coming true and tragedy has been avoided, the, the, the choosing is still choosing, but, but when all of those things aren't happening, the choosing is accentuated. The choosing then becomes about the heart of Jesus, not what he provides to you. The, that kind of choosing is a deep, deep, intimate strength of trust. That's what he's hoping to develop in us. The kind of mutual choosing that is expressed, again, when Jesus drives all of his followers away, on that mountainside near Capernaum, when he tells them all that they must eat his body and drink his blood and they don't understand what he's saying and he just repeats it nine times and they all leave and he asks his disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter says uh, what a person who has mutually chosen says. He says, where else would he go, Jesus? Only you have words of life and truth. 
What he's saying is I don't get it. I don't understand it, but I'm still choosing you because I'm in love with your heart, not the transactions you produce for me. That's what believing really means in the end. And that's what Jesus wants to nurture in us, a believing relationship where we mutually choose him. And the only way that we mutually choose Jesus is when we come right up against his heart. It's not because we have followed his principles well. Uh, again, Paul says, you know, you can try to follow his principles all you want, but you're going to fail in the end. You will not be able to do it all. So we can try to follow his principles well, but what Jesus really wants is for us to see his heart behind those principles, to understand what kind of person he is. It's the same way, again, if we go back to a developing relationship with someone who le eventually it leads to marriage, we, we don't just see the facts about that person's life, and we don't just see what they believe and don't believe, and their likes and, their, and, their, and the things they don't like. We start to become captured by, enamored by, all of the things that those principles and truths in their life represent. We start to fall in love with their heart. Um, and it's through their, what they say and what they do that we come to understand their heart. And once we understand their heart well, and it captures us, then we want to move toward marriage. We want to move toward a greater level of in intimacy. Our path forward into believing is to understand and appreciate the heart of Jesus more than we do now. Because when we do, we will fall in love with that heart, and our mutual choosing will lead to a wedding day. Um, I love, uh, I just, one of the devotions that I finished for uh, the Jesus Center Daily that comes out in October is a little story about Teresa of Avila, the, the great uh, ancient saint who was on her way with uh, some of her Carmelite nuns to plant a couple of new uh, outposts for their order. And they were in a carriage uh, along a uh, narrow winding mountain road. And because of heavy rains in the region, um, the, the rains had sort of washed out some of the road. You, there was so much water flowing down the road, you couldn't even tell where the edge of the road was. So they had to stop their carriage. And th they're all looking at this in the inter uh, Teresa's uh, fellow nuns in the carriage are saying, well, we're gonna have to turn around because we obviously can't go through this. And Teresa, in the, and this, was, this story happened in the last year of her life. She says to them, what better way to die than in the process of trying to serve Jesus. I'm, I'm getting out of the carriage and I'm, I'm walking. So she gets out of the carriage and she tries to walk through the current, which is fast flowing across the, the road. And she starts to be swept away by the current. She cries out, Jesus, Jesus, save me. And she finds her footing. And then she exclaims in kind of a, I love this. She, she says, uh, why do you always do this? Why don't you move some of these obstacles? Why, why do we have to go the extra mile? We're already doing something difficult. Why do we have to face this too? Basically, that's what she says. And she, she hears the voice of Jesus say to her, well, this is just how I treat my friends. And then Teresa shoots back to him, well, that's probably why you don't have very many. <laughs> but at the end of her life, I, I just love that story so much. At the end of her life, uh, which was not that long after this incident happened, uh, Teresa's on her deathbed, and she essentially says to Jesus out loud, those around her could hear her say this to him, 
Jesus, the time for us to meet face to face has come. I can't wait to meet you, my spouse. That's essentially what Teresa says. I can't wait to meet you, my spouse. She's really describing the end result of this mutual choosing where like a married couple, the two become one, that we join Jesus and he is in us and we are in him. That's what he's longing for in the end. So in the end, belief is the great equalizer. There's no longer salvation because of preferential treatment, because of your race or geography. Uh, like the children of Abraham and the centurion and the Gentile woman who uh, asked Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter and he calls her a dog and she says, well, even the dogs eat the scraps off the master's table. And he says, well, you have incredible faith, woman. Your daughter's healed like that woman and like the woman at the well and like Zacchaeus, we are all chosen because we believe and our belief is a mutual choosing. We are being chosen by our good father. We are being chosen by Jesus, our beloved, while we are choosing him. That's what, what belief really means. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Again, this is paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com, and it's season five, episode eight. You can uh, go to our website, by the way, and click on that link, and you'll find links to other things we've talked about today, including what Lectio Divina is all about. And by the way, you can subscribe to us to make sure that you don't miss an episode. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do tell your friends about this podcast if you think it would be helpful to them. There's no greater gift than offering to your friends something that you think would enrich and transform their lives. So tell your friends about it and have them take a listen to it. And then that also gives you something to talk about with your friends as well. So anyway, gang, we'll see you again next time. 